All right, tonight we're going to be looking at the ninth plague and uh, a threat of a tenth plague and a little bit of Passover stuff. And, uh, and then next week I'll, I'll explain that uh, here towards the end. Uh, first, what are all the plagues in order thus far? What was the first plague? Blood. Y'all took way too long to answer that. That was scary. thought we'd forgotten. Blood in the Nile. Yeah, all the water turned to blood. What was the second one? Frogs. Frogs. And what was third? Gnats. Fourth. Flies. Fifth. Livestock dies. Sixth. Boils. Seventh. Hail. Eighth. Locusts. So things aren't going so well for Egypt, and things are beginning to look up for Israel. And here we're coming to the end of the plagues. Um, And as we do so, I've urged you every week, I will continue to urge you to climb into the story. Import your senses. What would this be like? What would you see? What would you be experiencing? What would you sense that God is aiming to communicate in these things as they're played out in such a dramatic, crazy fashion? There's nothing subtle about any of this piece of Scripture. God is not being subtle at all. Maybe by his standard, he's being subtle. By ours, certainly not. And so um, Psalm 78 calls us to something, and we've talked about it the last few weeks, and I want to see if if y'all are getting it yet. What does Psalm 78 call us to? (laughs) Patrick, you can be excused. Sit in the hall. To remember. To remember and then do what? Once we remember. To tell. And who are we telling specifically? The future generations. Patrick, seriously, strike two. You got one more. Um, uh, Future generations. So it is important as we study this that you take it in to such a degree that you are going to make sure you tell your children and tell other people's children and tell all future generations of these things. They're not to be swept under the rug. Uh, They're not to be forgotten. Um, This is very much a part of our faith, our heritage of faith as well. So don't forget these things. Make sure we tell them to the coming generations. What do the first three plagues interfere with with the Egyptians? With their what? Their comfort. Very good. What do the second three plagues begin to interfere with? Their possessions. And the third three bring what? Destruction, desolation, and death. So we are getting into the deeper parts of desolation and death as we consider the ninth plague and the warning of the tenth plague uh, tonight. Desolation and death, they're severe. They're meant to have great impact even a few thousand years later as we are here studying them. Last week, I briefly urged you to consider steadfastness. It was very brief. It took actually 40 minutes um, last week. And I urge you to consider the steadfastness of Moses. How he kept going in. He kept doing what the Lord said. He was showing great faith in being a steadfast man of the Lord. What we considered last week is that if steadfastness and endurance and perseverance are commanded by God, like be these things, then God is not indifferent if I'm unsteady or unreliable or inconsistent. If you're inconsistent, unreliable, regularly in the ditch, uh, then God's not like, that's cool too. 
He's, that's not God's response. He, he's not in, and he's not indifferent towards, towards that, like he doesn't care. Um, his design is that we are steadfast people. If you are 110%, only 75% of the time, then you're not steadfast. You're, you're not living this life that is a pattern and, a, and, a, and a, a way of showing the steadfastness of your Lord by being steadfast. Um, in my studies this week, I found an observation that I believe just this real simple observation has some far-reaching implications. Now, it's from a guy named Evers. He's a, he's a commentary guy, um, uh, smart guy. And he had this observation, and his implications weren't at all what, what I felt the implications were from his observation. So I'm going to read his observation, and then I'll give my implications because they're better than his. Um, I'm kidding. They're just different. Um, uh, his observation was this. Busy slaves are exhausted slaves, and therefore less of a threat. Why are the Israelites enslaved in the first place? These plagues are meant to shake the kingdom of Egypt and have the people released. Why are they in slavery in the first place? Got to be too numerous. Why did that happen? God blessed them. Um, could have given an awkward answer there. Well, birds and the bees. Um, uh, anyway, uh, so God blessed them and they became abundant. And their abundance that was a blessing from the Lord was uh, despised by Egypt. And so um, my question is, busy slaves are exhausted slaves and therefore less of a threat. So they said, you're going to have to make bricks without straw. That's going to be harder. So I'm going to run you down and you're going to be exhausted. You're not just going to be like hardworking. You're going to be busy and exhausted and therefore less of a threat. So the question is, what was the threat in the first place? Yeah, there was a lot of them, but what threat does that bring? They could take, yeah, they could overthrow the government. They could be in charge. What else? Take over the culture. Absolutely. Maybe a less subtle way of infiltrating Egypt just begin to let the cultural norm be, we serve God. They could pollute the race. Absolutely. Um, they could pollute Egypt's race. Yeah. Yes. Why would we want a big uh, culture full of abominations? So that was the threat in the first place. How are you supposed to be a threat today? Are you supposed to be a threat to anyone or anything as a Christian? Or are you a passive butterfly who welcomes all things and is not offensive in the least? Are you to be a threat in any way? Your family, Christianity, belief, is it a threat? We'll start with that. Thank you. And now, to whom and how? To the culture. Absolutely. Absolutely. How else? Yep. And how could living for Christ possibly be, possibly be a threat to anybody? It exposes their sin. Goes against the cultural norm. Why is that such a big deal? Letting go of the American dream, that's just offensive. Okay, turn to Romans 
this section of Scripture has such far-reaching implications, and it's so detailed because of God's breathed-out purpose that we're going to go to a lot of parts of our Bible tonight. Um, there's just so much imagery, uh, so much foreshadowing, um, so much that's clarified over time in God's breathed-out Word that we're going to go to a lot of different places. So we're going to start in Romans eight thirty-seven. Romans 8.37 says, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. What were these things? Go to the previous verses. Who's to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Who is bringing tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword to Christians? Why would that happen? God for His glory. Who would be doing the persecuting? Though God is sovereign in His purposes, who would be doing that persecuting? Romans. This is being written to the church in Rome. And why would one persecute a Christian? Have you ever been persecuted? Like three people just went, eh. <laughs> yeah. That's going to be an offensive message to many. Jesus is the only way to God. There's no eternal life outside of Jesus Christ. You're a sinner. You're sideways with God. You're desperately needy, and your redemption and salvation is only found in another. You can't even earn it. Yes, you might be a good person, but not in the eyes of the Lord. Your standard for good is too low. That can be offensive. Like when people say, why do bad things happen to good people? They're oftentimes offended by the truth of the gospel because there's this assumption that everyone's so good. When in fact, all have sinned and fallen short. Jeremiah 17 says the heart of everybody is deceitful. Who can know it? Um, Turn over to 2 Corinthians 2.14. So in, in the persecutions, in the things that may come against believers, we don't just eke through and barely get through. In fact, it says we're more than conquerors, which I would at least take that to mean that we can get through all tribulation, all persecution in a way that... You don't just conquer it. You don't just, you're not just a conqueror, but you're more than that, meaning you put God's glory on display in it and honor Him in it. He gets glory, not just you. It goes beyond you to being about God. In 2 Corinthians 2.14, someone just read that out loud. Okay, thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us lead, spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of God of him, of him everywhere. Who's that bad news for? 
Thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. Who does that stink for? Unbeliever? Okay. Who else? People we triumph over, which would be who? Those who are perishing. The world. The rulers. Okay, we're getting specific. We're going. Get some traction here. The ones who are persecuting. And why would one persecute? Threatened? Yeah, um, who is our fight against? Yes, principalities and powers of darkness. That's very real. Darkness is a very real thing. I don't want this to just be, this isn't some war between believers and unbelievers. Hopefully, to some of the unbelievers, the fragrance is pleasing. That's what brought you from being an unbeliever to a believer, is you said, that smells good. I like that, and I'm going to talk about that. That's good. Um, But to others, it's a fragrance of, of death. So I want us to see that darkness is a very real thing, and Satan and his principalities don't like it when there is success in God's kingdom. And God's kingdom is not just something that will happen in a faraway land for a long time from now. It's happening right now. And, and, and the enemy is not for that. And those who are with the enemy are not for that. Um, turn to Ephesians 5.8. Satan and darkness. Triumphant procession for God's people is bad news for Satan and those in the dark. Ephesians 5.8. We'll just start at... Start in 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things... The wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Who are the sons of disobedience? The sons who don't? Okay. The sons who don't obey. Therefore, do not become partakers with them. What happens when you don't become partakers with them? You're hated. You're despised. You're shunned. Persecuted? Has anyone in here ever been offered drugs? Okay, my next question is, did you say no? Because if you said no, it's not likely that, that, that you were like, oh, it's cool, you're welcome here. At some point, you're going to be shunned because of that. You're going to be despised because of that. Patrick, you better have said no. Um, uh, yeah, here we have, um, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. The wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Romans 1.18, God's wrath is towards unrighteousness because unrighteousness suppresses the truth. Sons of disobedience are disobedient. They are not obeying the truth. Therefore, they're suppressing the truth, and that's where God's wrath is going. The wrath of God is upon the sons of disobedience. Take no part in what they're doing. Therefore, do not become partakers with them of wrath ultimately. 
They may think what they're partaking of is wonderful. Ultimately, it's wrath. For at one time, you were darkness. You see that? But now, you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Look at 6.12 in Ephesians. Ephesians 6.12 says what we were getting at just a little bit earlier. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. And it says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God. We start talking about darkness. It gets really dark. Turn to Colossians 1.13. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Considering that triumphal procession that God always leads his people in, which results in a fragrance that some smell as life and others smell as death. It says in Colossians 1.13, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Turn to 1 Peter 2.9. Keep going to the right. I tried to make it where you're always turning to the right. 1 Peter 2, 9. <clears throat> but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, Busy slaves are exhausted slaves and therefore less of a threat. Are you seeing that a little more clearly now? The threat is against the domain of darkness. It's pushing back darkness. It's rolling back darkness with the proclamation of the bright light of the gospel that there is redemption, there is salvation, you are a sinner and you need to be saved and you cannot achieve it on your own. That is a message of light and beautiful brightness that pushes back darkness. And darkness doesn't like it. Every time it's mentioned here, it's you're called out of darkness, and you, you proclaim that, and darkness doesn't like that. Busy slaves are exhausted slaves, and therefore less of a threat. So my question, Earl, simply is, are you too busy, thereby more exhausted, and now less of a threat as far as the furthering of the kingdom of God goes? It's a sobering question, sort of a long question, but sobering, and I'll shorten it. Are you so busy that you're just like this, Egypt's, Egypt's plan for, for the Israelites was, I will make you busy so you're exhausted and you're less of a threat. We won't have to worry about you. Are you so busy that you are absolutely exhausted and less of a threat to the domain of darkness? Have you ever considered, I'm supposed to be a threat to darkness? 
I'm supposed to be proclaiming the excellencies of the one who called me out of darkness. Consider your pace. Consider what slavery is. Busy, exhausted, less of a threat. So, uh, in light of darkness, turn to Exodus 10. Yeah. 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 You know, yeah, that's a really good point. Your pace is probably way too crazy if your vacation, you're looking forward to a vacation from faith. Not saying you were on a vacation from faith, but if you're like, whew. I don't want to have any responsibility to work or God, then that's a problem because we're always supposed to be pushing back on this. We're always supposed to be proclaiming the excellency of him who called us out of darkness. Because of that, you can have vacation in faith. That's a good point. So in light of darkness, Exodus 10, 21, I'm going to read 21 through 29. Climb into it. What does this look like? What does this not look like? What would this be like? Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. There was no warning. Remember the pattern of the plagues is two have a warning, the third one just comes. Two have a warning, the third one just comes. Two have a warning, the third one just comes. Number nine does not have a warning. A darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in the land of Egypt for three days. You ever had the lights go out in your house, like the electricity goes off at night? For a few moments, it's as though you've never lived there. Like you trip over like the couch or the refrigerator, something huge that's been there. You're just kind of thrown into weird frenzy. The lights are out. What am I going to do? And you just run and trip over something. Um, Here, this was a darkness of three days. I mean, just imagine all the things that come with darkness. Uh, you're, you're thrown off, uh, there's imbalance, there's confusion. This was a darkness for three days. They did not see one another. That's dark. So dark, they can't see someone right in front of them. Nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. Like, what are we going to do? Well, we're going to sit here. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Then Pharaoh called Moses. Pharaoh called Moses and said, Go serve the Lord. Your little ones also may go with you. I won't keep them as a ransom this time. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. But Moses said, You must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind, for we must take care of them. To serve the Lord, for we must take of them to serve the Lord with our God. And we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, 
Get away from me. Take care never to see my face again, for on the day you see my face, you shall die. Moses said, as you say, I will not see your face again. I'd say that the negotiations have ended at that point. If I see your face, I'll kill you. Moses said, all right, that's fine. What does God want them to feel? Egypt. What does God want the Egyptians to feel? Isolated? Helplessness? Hopelessness? Darkness! Feel that darkness! Because what goes along with feeling the darkness? Isolation, hopelessness, helplessness. What else? Anything else come to mind? Fear, absolutely. Wishing for the light. Yeah. Yes. A new appreciation for the light. God wants them to feel darkness. He doesn't just want it to be dark. He, he wants them to feel darkness. What is their darkness a result of? What? Disobedience. What else? How else could you classify their disobedience? Sin? Arrogance? Godlessness? Not heeding the warnings from the one true God? Putting dependence in other things? Not God? So God says, all right, I want you to feel the darkness. That's what he says. Now, um, What are, I'll ask, so maybe someone else will say it, what are some of the evangelistic implications of this? God wants them to feel the darkness. What is evangelism? Spreading of the gospel? Light into darkness? Any other ways you'd define evangelism? Convincing or persuasion of someone who knows Yeah, okay, that's good, that's good. Um, so God wants them to feel the darkness. What would y'all say are some evangelistic implications of that truth? Sure. Yeah. Yeah, what's not, what would keep the heart of stone to the heart of flesh? What would make that, what's the darkness part of it? Yes. Yes. So is it good news just to say, you could have heart of flesh? It's okay. But it, it doesn't show the darkness. What I'm getting at here, that's a great example because what I'm getting at here is like, there's so many people that try to share the gospel with it. Hey, you can have a better life. You can not have to worry about this sin problem. Uh, or, or you can be happier. Or your problems won't be as hard. Jesus will love you. 
you'll be loved by God. And there's, there's a lot of very positive language, but when you hear the positive language without the backdrop of darkness, it's not the good news of the gospel. It's just, you've heard Ben say it a lot, it's just news at some point, as opposed to good news. Good news is the, the, heart, the heart was stone. You got to see that darkness. You got to see that you were in darkness before you see the goodness of being delivered from a domain of darkness. And so the evangelistic implications here are you have to tell people about their sin. You have to confront them in their darkness and tell them light is a good news because you're in the dark. A heart of flesh is good news because you have a heart of stone. Being, uh, having favor in the Lord's eyes is good news because otherwise it's His wrath on your head. Unrighteous one who suppresses the truth by your disobedience. How's that going to go over at the water cooler? How's that going to go over with your friends? For an unbelieving person that you just met at the gas station, we can't take out the darkness part because that's what makes it good news. God wanted them to feel darkness. It is so utterly profound that plague one, they harden their hearts. Plague two, harden their hearts. Three, four, five, six, seven, eight. I don't care what God says. I don't care about the warnings. I'm moving forward in my disobedience. God says, feel the darkness then. That has an impact on the way we share the gospel with people. Yep. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. We were all sons of disobedience at one point. There's some sermons online on this whole Passover section and all these implications, and they're all online. And I, I was tempted to just say, we're just going to listen to them because <laughs> they're really, really wonderful. So I would urge y'all, use our online resources because all the stuff about the Passover that we're about to get into, the plagues, the implications, all the things about Jesus that are woven all through them are online. And I'd encourage you to utilize those. Go listen to those with your families. Listen to them in the car. They're really wonderful. And we're going to be in Exodus for a while. So that would actually be a great thing to do maybe over the summer while we're not meeting on Wednesdays. Um, So God wanted them to feel the darkness. You may ask, why didn't someone just light a candle or something? That was my first question. I was like, darkness is a problem for like two seconds until I can find something to light or, you know, a flashlight or whatever. Obviously, they didn't have flashlights, but certainly had candles, fire. Um, this is a supernatural darkness. This isn't just absence of light. This is God saying, feel this darkness that I am bringing upon you. And we know that because it, in Goshen... The, the Israelites had light. So this is a supernatural movement of God saying, I want you to feel the darkness. So I, God, I'm not just going to like wait until like an eclipse so this can be explained away by natural causes where it was dark. Well, the sun at that time and the month, so people will try to explain it away. He, he's saying, no, I'm, doing, I'm just going to make it dark. Like so dark you can feel it. And for my people, they'll have light. So it wasn't just a matter of the sun shining over here and it being cloudy over here. It was God's supernatural divine movement saying, I'm going to make it dark here. I'm going to make it light here. Also, the Egyptians worshiped the sun god Ra or Ray. Um, 
Uh, and for there to be darkness like this for three days is to show that the one who they worship is not in control. And if you find that the one you worship is not in control at one point, it's likely that they were never in control at all. So that's a pretty far-reaching implication for them. This darkness is saying, okay, we've been worshiping the sun god, and this is bad news, what's going on? And it will cause them to turn Godward in one manner or another. How did Pharaoh try to keep the Israelites tethered to Egypt? By keeping their livestock. We've considered how their oppression, how, how Israel's oppression informs us in our circumstances, but more than that in our sin. Like we don't just read this and be like, yeah, my boss is a jerk like Pharaoh, so I just got to endure. Maybe he'll get plagued. Like it, it goes way beyond that where what we're seeing here is that their oppression and slavery in these conditions help us to understand our circumstances in sin. Sin is corrosive. Sin is oppressive. Sin brings misery. Sin does not bring relief. What are some ways that sin tries to keep us tethered to it? Here, Pharaoh says, I'm going to keep him tethered. I'm going to do anything I can just to hold on to him. Y'all can go, but leave your kids. Okay, that didn't work. Y'all can go, but leave your livestock. And Moses is like, not one hoof are we going to leave behind. So how is that true with us in our sin? Greed? Yeah? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, some of us have prayed that prayer. God, I'm okay with you having this. Totally cool with this. Didn't even like this in the first place. But this over here, that's mine. Keep your hands off. It, there's this thing that's like, is, is it really a wholehearted, complete devotion? I mean, can any of us sitting here say, yeah, I'm not tethered to sin at all at this point in life? I mean, all of us should be saying, yeah, I'm, I'm tethered here and here and here and here. What are some of those things? Maybe not for you personally, but someone you know. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. What else? How else? Sin, tethering. Plead ignorance. Yeah. Yeah, that's not abnormal. <laughs> that's not abnormal. What you just said is not abnormal. I, I, uh, I, I met with um, someone recently, and uh, I opened the Bible, and I said, what you're doing is sin. This is God's breathed out word, and as he breathed it out, he wants you to know that what you're doing is sin. <laughs> they just looked at me and said, I'm going to have to disagree with you. You're not disagreeing with me. This is God breathed, not Scott breathed, and you're disagreeing with the Lord. Well, I don't know, to each his own. Like, no, not to each his own. It's a sin. Pleading ignorance is, we do it all the time. And sometimes it's not just this black and white kind of ignorance where it's like, I didn't know it was wrong. It's this, 
I didn't realize how wrong it was. So somehow that makes it okay. I'll dabble in that sin. What are some other things? Sin and it's tethering. Yeah. Yeah, there's, there's plenty of good Christian people who help, 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 help. Maybe the news crew's there and they get, they get, uh, they have a little interview. And why are you helping people? And that, because it makes me feel good. Well, is that a good faithful motive? How about Jesus tells me to? He helped me a lot. I will help others now. But the motive is everything. You're exactly right. Romans 14 says anything done outside of faith is sin. Will you leave here and go to Walmart in faith? And what in the world does that mean? Anything done outside of faith is sin. So motive is everything. You're exactly right. Uh huh. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Walking by faith and walking by sight are those are the two things opposed to each other. So things we can see that makes me feel good. I can see that. That's good. It could be your bank account. As long as it doesn't drop below this, I'm totally cool. We get below that number, I'm freaking out. That's very normal for a lot of people. Normal doesn't make it okay. Yeah, that may be your excuse. That may be your tethering. Lots of people are like this. That's not okay either. Sin is sin. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. But you think that, and you say, no, like, yeah. I know it's sin, but I'm going to do it. Yeah. Absolutely. Baxter in that same study goes on to say that there's no pastor has ever had a privilege in his sin. Like, God will not give you privilege in your sin because of an office you hold or, or, a, or I'm a Sunday school teacher, you know. <laughs> at, at the very least, I can do this. As if it's not going to affect anything. You have no privilege in your sin ever at all, no matter what. There's never a time where God's like, he's a pastor. I don't want his life to be screwed up. I'll, I'll let him hide that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, t- turn quickly over to Colossians 3.5. I, just, I see this tethering that keeps happening and just in our sin that we're so prone to it in so many areas. Or we begin to see one sin as really gruesome and horrible. And we're like, you know what? I can't be a part of that anymore. And we see other sins in a lighter manner, which is not, it's all bad. And Colossians 3, 5 really helps us to see this. There's a, uh, Jerry Bridges, I believe it was, wrote a book called Respectable Sins. 
like sins that the Christian culture just sort of embraces. Like pretty much any guy can stand in front of a group of other guys and say, I've got an issue with pride and not feel any guilt at all. Not feel bad about it at all because he knows that everyone else has an issue with pride in the room. So there's these respectable sort of sins. And Colossians 3, 5 gives us some direction in that. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Put to death. Don't dabble. Don't don't wound it. Kill it. Cut the windpipe. Break off the blood supply. Murder it. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And in case you're not sure what that is, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, what's coming? The wrath of God, which is towards what? Because it does what? Okay, we're, we're all going to get that. Um, so uh, put sin to death. Don't, don't be tethered uh, like Pharaoh tethers the Israelites uh, trying to hold on to a piece so that they might feel inclined or feel like they have to have something back in Egypt. God's saying, you're, you're leaving Egypt. This is the Exodus. It'll be a major book in my breathed out word. A serious event. They're leaving Egypt. They don't need to be tethered in any way. Whatever your Egypt is, you're not to be tethered to it in any way. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Look at Exodus, what chapter are we in? 10, 29. Moses said, as you say, I will not see your face again. So the negotiations are over. This is a, a pretty significant turning point. Then in 11.1, the Lord said to Moses, yet one plague more. That must have been sweet to Moses, right? Thank goodness. I don't know if there's going to be like 40 of these things or 100 of these things. Death and desolation are already upon us. What more can he do? The Lord says, I'll bring one, I'll bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt this one, one more plague. Afterward, he'll let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Quite the turn of events. This is the first time that God reveals a timeline. This is the first time that God reveals, reveals details about their release. This is the first time also in these next couple of verses where God prepares Israelite for uh, the exodus with specific plan and direction. Verse 2, speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask, every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor, for silver and gold jewelry. <laughs> what? Well, ask your neighbor for their jewelry? What in the world is that about? And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. This is crazy. Up until this point, it's been the Niles turned to blood. No. Okay. Frogs everywhere. Uh uh. You're not leaving. Pharaoh's heart is hardened. It's interesting the impact that it's having on the Egyptian culture, the Egyptian community there. The boils, the gnats, the hailstones striking down livestock. No, no, no. But now we're to a point, it's, hey, uh, I'm an Israelite. I'm going to be leaving soon. Your silver and gold, you just put it in this bag. I'm going to take it with me. Oh, okay, here you go. That's where we're at. They're asking their neighbors for silver and gold, which that silver and gold will be very significant uh, later on. But 
uh, this turn of events is crazy. God's saying, not only are you going to leave, but they're going to be running you out of town. This, this place you've been wanting to leave and they won't let you, they're going to be like pushing you out the door because of what I'm going to do. And so, uh, and they're going to give you their jewelry, their silver and their gold. The Israelites didn't earn favor with the Egyptians. God gave it. God caused it. The short section, section of scripture reminds me of Joseph a lot. Um, where Moses, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, in the sight of the people, he, he's, he's very, very great. And it reminds me of Joseph. Moses, the unlikely and despised, is now viewed as very great in the sight of all of Egypt, including Pharaoh's servants. Look at verses 4 through 10. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. But a dog shall, uh, not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. At this point, Moses is heated, and he says, he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people go out of his land. Consider the complexity of what's being proclaimed here. God will kill every firstborn in the land of Egypt. There's absolutely nothing insignificant about that. God's power has already been abundantly displayed, but not as profoundly as it would be in this final plague. It comes, there's this warning that takes up a lot, of, a lot of real estate here in Exodus because it's a big deal. You've got to watch these kinds of patterns in Scripture. If you see something repeated a lot, pay attention to it. If you see how every plague, it was two had a warning, the third didn't, two had a warning, the sixth didn't, two had a warning, the ninth didn't, and then you see this final plague threatened, you see God beginning to say, okay, y'all get ready, we're about to leave. You see God preparing his people, you see God go to Moses and say, it's going to be time, this is the last one. And then you see this preparation, it hasn't even happened yet, but you can almost feel the horrible nightmare of what is upon Egypt. You're supposed to feel that. This final plague. Turn to Exodus 4. Just a couple chapters before. We've only been studying Exodus for about eight weeks now, just so you all know. I looked at my notes and thought it was messed up, but I've only been studying for about eight weeks. So just a few weeks ago in Exodus 4, 22, we saw this happen. In verse 21, it says, The Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, where was Moses? Why was he going back to Egypt? Yeah, he'd been in Midian. He'd been shepherding the flocks of Jethro. He'd gotten married. He had, had, he had fleed from Egypt because he killed a guy. 
Now, the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I've put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Not, this is before the first plague's even been warned. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord Israel, is my firstborn son. The Lord has Moses tell Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. We may not have known how sobering that was when we read it the first time, but now as this final plague is warned, those words, let my son go to serve me or I will kill your firstborn son. Every promise that the Lord makes, he fulfills. Pharaoh may have been thinking at some point, he's not going to do that. Maybe Pharaoh forgot that he even said that. God didn't forget that he said that. I will kill your firstborn son. God fulfills all his promises. One commentator named uh, Motyer, uh, he said, the word of God cannot be refused end- endlessly. This, is, this, is, this could be troubling, so listen closely. The word of God cannot be refused endlessly. There always has to be an end, a meeting with God whom our refusals have offended to the point of finality. I recently read uh, someone saying, God's patience will run out. Like, really? The fruit of the Spirit is patience, and He's always got the fruit. How does that work? God's patience is limited, is what someone else wrote. And these were troubling thoughts to me. Is, there, is He really limited in patience? Is He losing His patience? Or is He divinely set bounds to His patience? Turn to Romans 2. This is aptly titled God's Righteous Judgment in the little subheading. God didn't breathe that out. Someone else did. It helps us. Romans 2 verse 4. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? I would personally say, I think Pharaoh was probably presuming upon something, something of that matter. I mean, I'll kill your firstborn if you don't let my firstborn go. That, that didn't seem to shake Pharaoh in the least. Plagues one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Nine, they just sat in darkness for three days. Didn't seem to shake him in the least. If someone had a wrong view of this, they could say, why didn't God give him an 11th option? He got 10. Why couldn't God be more merciful and give him 11 or 12? Or if we get to 15, I'm going to ask for 20. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're Pharaoh, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. If you are without Christ and God's judgment is upon you, you're receiving wrath. The wages of sin is death. 
The only way you don't get death, the only way you don't get wrath, is Jesus. If he judges you in Christ, if he says, I count Christ's righteousness as yours, that's what makes it good news. So that idea of, will God's patience run out? Is it limited? Is there the, a point of finality where God's like, no more patience? I think by his divine ordering there is. Because his patience, do you not know that his patience is meant to lead you to repentance? Pharaoh didn't repent because he had a hard heart. Israel left. God's promises were fulfilled. His purposes were achieved. Pharaoh still had a hard heart. And what we're going to see next week is it'll cost him his firstborn and more. Yeah. Yeah. This is good. Yeah. I'm glad they're gone. Yeah. God's wrath is still being stored up and they don't even know it until judgment. Yeah. Stored up. That's terrifying if you really think about it. All calamity, all plagues, all hardship, all sickness leads to a final end, which is death. The the plagues here are leading to death. That's the point. It's not just plague upon plague, it's always gonna be hard. It's it, it it will go beyond hard to death. At some point, leads to the final end, which is death. God's message at this point is, I want you to feel darkness that comes from refusing me. That's, that's what he's saying to them. That's what he's communicating even to us so many years later. He's saying, in this study tonight, <laughs> as we sat here, God's saying, I want you to feel the darkness that comes from refusing me. And I want you to feel the death that is upon you if you should do so. That's what God's saying. Very sobering. This cry that comes out that we're going to look at more closely next week, this cry in Egypt from the death, is, is completely unique. It's one that's meant to be heard and even felt. Consider the cries you've heard at funerals. Have you ever seen someone receive news that their loved one is dead? That's, that's very, very painful. You ever seen it on the news, maybe, where you see someone being told they're gone? And there's just this horrible, from the gut, from the heart, cry like someone's been punched in the soul. That's the sound. Even that does not measure up to the cry that came out of Egypt because of God pouring out his wrath on these people. Very, very sobering. When we hear sober warnings about the realities of refusing God... There's something that we as children of God should be encouraged in. We should be encouraged in our redemption that's in Christ, which we'll consider in the Passover next week. I want to close with John 8, 51. I think that no matter how well any of us know the gospel, it can be even better news every day. I think that as you study the darkness of Egypt, I mean, if you've never studied the plagues, the gospel's good news, but afterwards, the light might even be brighter. As you look at the darkness that was felt and the death that was imminent, absolutely upon them. For you, as a child of God, you may be thinking, man, thank the Lord for Jesus. That's what I'm hoping happens here. I, I, I don't necessarily want, I'm ending with John 8, because I don't want a room of believers to leave here being like, man, God was really hard on them. Yes, he was hard on them, but guess what it is for you? John 8, 51. 
truly, truly, I say to you, that's Jesus talking. If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. That's really good news. Because if you don't fear death, what else is there to fear? If you don't fear death, what else is there to fear? For the Egyptians, I will kill your firstborn. The fear of death is very real. But those who are in Christ, those who keep his word, you will not taste death. Another version says taste. This one says see. Jesus doesn't seem to refute uh, either instances. So truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. We should be very, very greatly encouraged at the redemption that we have in our Savior, Jesus Christ. We should be thankful that just like the sons of disobedience, we were once walking in darkness, but we have been pulled from the domain of darkness and are now children of light, and we're supposed to walk in a manner worthy. If we live by the Spirit, let us walk by the Spirit and not the flesh. These are all encouragements that come from studying the plagues and studying this hard-heartedness. And we heed the warning from Psalm 95, don't harden your hearts. When the Lord convicts you, when the Lord shows you truth, when someone comes to you to hold you accountable on something, don't harden your hearts against God, but submit to the Lord and seek to honor him in the way you live. Let's pray. Lord, tonight's study is very sobering. Um, I'm thankful I'm thankful that for those who are in Christ, that this fellowship that we are having with our Lord right now, as we come to you in prayer, you allow us to let our request be made known. So you're a God who is so involved, so close, so relational, that my words as a sinner, a needy sinner, are being heard by you right now. And the prayers on the hearts of everyone in this room are being heard by you right now. You give us promises that when we draw near to you, you hear us. That's supposed to encourage us. This fellowship we have with you, even when death comes, it's not even interrupted at all. We continue in the fellowship we have with you. We will not see or taste death. Death does not scare us because of Christ. Without Christ, we should fear death eternally because that will be our lot. I pray, Lord, that as we look at Egypt feeling darkness, I pray that we would rejoice in the light that is in Goshen with the Israelites. I pray that as we see this pronouncement of impending death for the firstborn of Egypt, I pray that we would rejoice in the blood of the Lamb that saves the firstborn of Israel and saves Israel the firstborn. Lord, there, there's so many details in the Scripture. I, I feel like we just barely even scratched the surface tonight, and next week is our last Wednesday before summer break, and uh, I just don't want us to, to climb out of this. I want us to stay in it and see what it is you would have us to say. So I pray that you would help us to do so. Help us to heed the warnings that are here. Help us to rejoice in the truth of the light. We love you very much. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.